Jesus, the stubborn Christ in the firestorm. The opening verse of chapter 7 introduces the subject of the entire chapter. Look at it. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. That not that a foreboding statement? A foreboding opening to a new chapter. A sober beginning to a new scene as John continues his story. The rest of the chapter is a commentary on that first verse. You understand chapter 7? The rest of the chapter is a commentary on that first verse. This is a chapter of debate, a chapter of questions, where everyone is asking questions, including Jesus. 19 questions. Do you hear that? 19 questions are asked by the various characters and groups in this chapter. Perhaps there's not another chapter in Scripture with more questions. It's a chapter of quarreling where people are divided from each other and there's only one issue over which they quarrel and which divides, and that issue is Jesus. It's a chapter where the authorities seek to arrest Jesus for the purpose of executing him. It's a chapter where Jesus purposely walks into a seething cauldron with quarrels all about him and hatred for him. All of this is a very real Conflagration. You know what a conflagration is? Conflagration. It's a great word. It means firestorm. A firestorm is a fire that is so fierce, so huge, and so intense that it creates its own wind, its own force. This fiery description of this chapter or of this fiery description of, of Jerusalem is not an exaggeration. Just six months after this, Jesus would be arrested, tried, and crucified in this very city by the very people that confront him in this chapter. Make no mistake about it. One of John's purposes in chapter 7 is to picture Jesus, the Christ, in the middle of a dangerous firestorm. Brothers, you going up. You don't want to go up with me. Disciples, you go on up. You don't want to go up with me. Let's take a moment. Let's take a, just a couple of minutes to look at the moving parts of this firestorm in Jerusalem. First, look at the questions. In verse 11, the Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, where is he? Now, remember, when you read the word the Jews or the phrase the Jews in the Gospel of John, he is referring to the Jewish authorities. Not to all the Jews. Jesus is Jewish. The 12 disciples are Jewish. All of Judea is Jewish. All of Galilee in the north is Jewish. When John uses his terms, he's talking about the Jewish authorities, mainly the Sanhedrin. And they're already trying to kill him long before this. In chapter 5 of John, we read in verse 18, it's there on your scripture sheet, this is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. That was the issue. 
So here these leaders are at the Feast of Booths, this great, great feast in chapter 7, and they're licking their chops. Where is he? Where is he? Certainly he'll be here. This is the lion's den, the proverbial lion's den, and they want him there. Another question. Jesus asked in verse 19, why do you seek to kill me? And the crowd hears this and they answer, you have a demon. Who's seeking to kill you? What happened? Jesus asked these Jewish authorities in front of the crowd, why are you seeking to kill me? And the crowd responds, you're paranoid, Jesus. Who's trying to kill you? That crowd is made up. We've seen this in, in as we talked about in the first few verses of John 7. This crowd, this was this sometimes was larger feast than Passover. So here's this huge crowd in Jerusalem, made up from people all over Israel. Many are from Jewish colonies around the Mediterranean. They don't know about the two-year battle taking place between the Sanhedrin and Jesus. They don't know about the plans of the Sanhedrin to arrest Jesus. So then Jesus answers the crowd with another question for the authorities. He said, you want to know why they're trying to kill me? Look at verse 23. Are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? That happened on his previous visit to Jerusalem. He healed a man on the Sabbath. Jesus said, you circumcise a child on the Sabbath. How can you be angry with me for showing mercy to a man on the Sabbath? You seem you circumcise a child on the eighth day, and if the eighth day happens to be on the Sabbath, you circumcise a child. And here I come and heal a man completely, a paralytic. And you say I'm breaking the Sabbath? How is that? He was saying to the crowd, that's why they want to kill me. Jesus was openly teaching in the temple. And so the people began to ask, if you see there in verse 26, he's here speaking openly. And they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities actually believe that he's the Christ? Maybe, maybe they've talked about this and they're saying maybe he is the Christ. Some of the crowd was saying that. But then the crowd began to ask a question that the authorities really didn't want to hear. And it's profound. You could spend, we could just take this verse next week and, and preach about it, think about it. Yet, verse 31, yet many of the people believed in him. And they said, when Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? If he's not the Christ, when Christ does come, is he going to do more than this man? What this man has done has been incredible. It's a chapter of debate. It's a chapter where everyone is asking questions. It's also a passage of quarreling where people are divided from each other and there's only one issue over which they're divided. The issue is Jesus. Look at verse 12. And there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said he's a good man, others said, no, he's leading the people astray. Some saw Jesus as a blessing. Some saw him as a curse. But he was the center of the argument. Then there are the Pharisees. The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things, looking about, this is verse 32, 
things about him, and the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. So here's Pharisees. They heard the crowd muttering, controversy. They sent officers to arrest him. But look at what the officers said when they returned without Jesus. The officers in verse 45, the officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, why did you not bring him? And the officer said, no one ever spoke like this man. The Pharisees answered him, you've been deceived? Jesus even caused division between the leaders of the Sanhedrin and the officers that served them. Look at verse 40. When they heard these words, some of the people said, this is really the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, it's the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was a division among the people over him. You see what John's doing? He, he's showing us this firestorm in Jerusalem. And who was at the center of the division between the people? Jesus was. But then John continues to draw a division, and this division is even in the Sanhedrin. Look at verse 47. The Pharisees answered him, or answered them, that when the officers returned, the Pharisees said to these officers when they came back empty-handed, this is verse 47, Have you also been deceived? Have you seen any of the authorities or the Pharisees believing in him? But the crowd, the crowd doesn't know the law. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before and who was one of them, said to them, Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? They turned on Nicodemus. Are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. The fair, look, what's happening there? The Pharisees answered the empty-handed officers, have you all been duped? Look at us. We're your knowledgeable leaders. We're the theologians. We're the politicians. We're the leaders. Do you see if any, any of us who believed in him? <laughs> Nicodemus says, hold on, guys. He is a revered member of the Sanhedrin. He said, hold on. Are we not judging this man without a hearing? And so they turn on Nicodemus. So even Nicodemus and, and the other members of the Sanhedrin are divided. So we see Jesus, this is where Jesus is, in this Jerusalem, in the midst of a firestorm. Why was he there? Why didn't he just wait and go up six months later for the Passover? I want us to take away three things from this that we see here. First, Jesus was following God's schedule and plans, not the Sanhedrin's. Jesus was following God's schedule, not the Sanhedrin's. He would not let the world alter or the world's plan alter his plan. Look at John 7 verse 6. Jesus said to them, my time has not yet come. Look at verse 30. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. 
It is so important theologically that we understand what Jesus was saying, what John was saying. No firestorm had the power to destroy Jesus. Neither the firestorm in Jerusalem at this Feast of Booths, the firestorm that would come later at the Passover, could take his life. Jesus was not. Sometimes he's pictured this way, even by ministers preaching, that he's pictured as this victim that's caught up in the political gears, crushing gears of the world. That's not what we read in the Gospels. What was it Jesus said to the disciples when they tried to stop the forces? You remember when he was arrested in Gethsemane? And Peter drew his sword. He was going to fight. And what did Jesus say? It's there in Matthew 26, 53 on your scripture sheet. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? Jesus was saying, Peter, disciples, don't you know who I am? I'm the son of God and you're going to protect me? Really? That's what he was saying. No human force, no evil spiritual force could have nailed the son of God and son of man to those cross beams. His life was not taken from him by Satan or man's omnipotence. What does the most famous Bible verse in the Bible say? For God so loved the world, what comes next? That he gave his only son. He was not seized from the Father. He was not forcibly taken from the Father. The Father gave him. Do you really think the Sanhedrin, Pilate, Caesar, the entire Roman Empire had the power to nail the Son of God and Son of Man to a cross? Was the intent to kill him not there at the Feast of Booths? Was power not there in the hands of the Sanhedrin? They sent the officers to arrest him and they literally couldn't arrest him. No one ever spoke like this man. That's what they said. Are you kidding? Arrest him? John gave the reason. So they were seeking to arrest him. Verse 30. But no one laid a hand on him. Why? Because his hour had not yet come. This was the Feast of Booths, people. This was not Passover. He was to be the Passover lamb. That was God's plan. So the Passover lamb could go to Jerusalem and be fearless in the midst of a firestorm. There would come a time when both the father and the son would say, the hour is here. But he was only crucified because he surrendered. He was not conquered. People, there's a great peace for us in this. Look at the promises that Christ has made to us through his disciples as his disciples. You know, we miss it sometimes when he's speaking to disciples and he makes a promise. He tells the disciples, you can see him teaching there. And he says, Peter, not a hair can fall from your head apart from the Father. That's a promise to you. It's a promise to me. It's a promise to his disciples. There's a great peace in that. 
What did Jesus say to Pilate when the Roman governor said to, to Jesus, don't you know, why are you being silent? Don't you know I have the power to crucify you? And what did Jesus say? This is where he went, and it's always where we should go. You would have no authority over me unless it had been given you from above. That, you can't touch me apart from the will of my Father. This should shout to us, especially now when we're surrounded by our secular culture that scorns the Bible, laughs at God's word, scoffs at the truth that Jesus is the Son of God. We're supposed to stand up in the firestorm, this secular firestorm that we have. God says to us, this, this firestorm has no power over you. It doesn't have any power over Christ's Presbyterian church. We live by the mores and paradigms set forth by Christ. We don't live by the mores and paradigms set forth by the world. We don't live on their timetable. The world didn't say when we would be born and the world will not say when we will die. God and only God is the sovereign reigning over every aspect of his children's lives. Jesus was fearlessly following God's schedule, not the Sanhedrin's. Secondly, that we just take away. In this seething cauldron, and I love this. This is so good. In this seething cauldron, Jesus was stubbornly continuing to make his claim to deity. Now, maybe you say sometime, your wives say sometime about your husband. You say, he is so stubborn. And sometimes you men say about your wives. She is so stubborn. And in that kind of, we, you know, we use stubborn as a bad word. Look it up in the dictionary. It's not a bad word. It means determined. It means doggedly determined. In this seething cauldron, Jesus was stubbornly continuing to make his claim to deity. You know, the, his brothers, remember, told him to go up and do your great miracles up there in the midst, in the public square. Do you know that he didn't do that this time? It's the only time that he goes to Jerusalem or goes throughout like that and doesn't do America. Doesn't. He just makes a statement. Look at verse 37. On the last day of the feast, this great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. This is high drama. You say, John, what do you mean high drama? The Feast of Booths, we talked about this last time. The Feast of Booths was a remembering and a celebration. It was a, it was a celebration that all the crops were in. This was the last great celebration at the end of harvest season. But it was also a remembering of their journey through the wilderness when they lived in tents. And so in the Feast of Booths, the Feast of Tents, the Feast of Tabernacles, they would build these these tents. They'd put up these tents. They'd put them on housetops. They'd put them in the streets. They'd put them outside the temple. And, and they would stay in those tents, in those little dwellings for the week, remembering 
the path, remembering their journey through the wilderness. They remembered God giving them the manna, but they also remembered God giving them water. Remember when they're in the wilderness and they had no water? They thought they would die in the desert. The day that they would die of thirst. And what happened? God gave them water from the rock. Well, every day in this Feast of Booths, the high priest would take an urn and he would leave the temple. And he would, this is all ceremony. It was a parade. They would ceremoniously go down to the pool of Siloam. He would dip the urn in the water, fill it with, uh, in, in, fill it with water. And then he would ceremoniously, it was a parade. They'd go back to the temple, and he would pour it on the altar every day. On the last day of the feast, probably at the very moment the high priest returned with the water, Jesus made this claim. It wasn't a miracle. He didn't heal anybody. He stood up one more time. Now, rabbis, you know how we know this is important? First, he stood. Rabbi, Jesus had been teaching. He had been sitting down. You read, he had been teaching in the temple. He had been sitting down. He stands. And he doesn't keep talking. It doesn't say that he said. It says he shouted. It's a great crowd. Jesus, high priest comes with the water. Jesus stands and shouts, if anyone's thirsty, let him come to me and drink. It was claiming deity one more time. Claiming to be able to do what only God could do. He was talking about spiritual thirst. He was repeating what he had said to the woman at the well. I will give you living water that will quench your insatiable thirst. In chapter 6, Jesus had given the great crowd the bread and and fish. He had fed the 5,000 like God fed the people of Israel in the wilderness. Here in the midst of this seething cauldron, as they celebrate the water coming from the rock, Jesus stands and says, I am the source of a spiritual water that will satisfy the thirst of the soul. Again, this just preaches to us. We live in a culture. We live in a culture that is just as hostile. And you've got to understand, we're going to talk about the water in a minute. But what was Jesus doing? He was claiming deity. In every chapter, he does that. In every episode, he does that. Do you realize who I am? And he goes into this cauldron just to do it one more time. What did he say? All you who are thirsty, come to me. Don't go to God. Come to me and drink. Let me ask you a question. You know, Jesus, Jesus, all he had to do was go to the Sanhedrin and say, guys, I'm not God. All he had to do was go and say, I'm not the Messiah. All he had to do was go and say, I'm not the son of God. I'm just a prophet. Just a Jewish prophet. Sanhedrin would have hugged him. Would have loved him. That's all he had to do. But what does he do? He goes right into the storm. Right into the den of lions. And he says, I am the living water. I am 
the water that will quench the thirst of your souls, the water that only God can give. You say, that's stubborn now. That's real stubborn. Question. Here's my question. I asked myself all week long, are you that stubborn about the deity of Christ in the society in which we live? You can go to, your, to you if, if Christ Presbyterian Church denied the deity of Jesus, if we said he wasn't born of a virgin, if we said he was just a great prophet, you know what? You would find the world hugging you to death, saying thank you. He stubbornly continued to make his claim. And it asks us the question, are we going to let the world around us, the universities, our businesses, our friendships, our politics, our social media, are we going to let all those platforms cancel Jesus? That's what they're doing. Make no mistake about it. They're going to cancel Jesus. And you'll be their friends if you'll just cancel him too. How stubborn are you about the deity of Jesus? Jesus was fearlessly following God's schedule, not the Sanhedrin's. In this seething cauldron, Jesus was stubbornly continuing to make his claim to deity. Finally, hang with me. This is so good. This is the end. This is the last point. Jesus declared that in receiving this water, our lives would become a reservoir of living water to the world. It says it right here. Look at it. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. And whoever believes in me, as the scripture said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given because Jesus has, was not glorified. Jesus says, we're not only drinkers of the water, we're not only receivers of the water, we're reservoirs of this living water, reservoirs from which the water flows into the world around us. What's, you know, all our towns, all our we have reservoirs. And that reservoir is no good unless it flows into Summerlin, into Oakland, into Fayette County. Well, that's the picture that we have here. We drink, and John says that the water of which Jesus spoke was the Holy Spirit. We drink from him. And the Holy Spirit indwells us. And the water, then we're reservoirs, not just drinkers, now, so, so much of the preaching I heard talked about how he satisfies the thirst. It's not only that. This flows into the world around us. He said rivers of living water. Not, not, not a trickle, not drops. Rivers of living water flow into the world around us. Now that's not, that doesn't mean that we go to our next door neighbor and bestow the Holy Spirit on them. Or go to the people with whom we work and bestow the Holy Spirit. We don't have any power to bestow the Spirit on anyone. That's not what this is saying. So how then does the water flow like rivers of living water from our lives? What is the fruit? What is the fruit 
that this water produces in our lives. You all know that. Tell me, what is the fruit? It's the fruit of the Spirit. Look at Galatians 5, and 23. But the fruit of the Spirit is love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. In our everyday lives out in the world, this supernatural fruit, and it is supernatural by virtue of the Holy Spirit, this supernatural fruit flows from our lives into the world around us. This week, this week, all week long, I thought about the men and women who drank that water And the reservoir in their lives flowed into my life, profoundly affecting me and changing me. Now, you might think that I would then speak to you about R.C. Sproul, Dr. R.C. Sproul, arguably the greatest theologian of our day, or R.T.L. Liston my college president, or Dr. Philip H. Hughes, who was one of the foremost, one of the greatest New Testament scholars of the 20th century. But more than anyone else this week, I found myself, and this is true, I found myself thinking about Maud Hawkins. You've heard me speak of her previously. She and her husband, Jim, lived in Coburn, Virginia. When I was in junior, when... I was a junior and senior in college. I would be asked to, to speak in small churches in the mountains of southern Virginia. I'm, by the way, I'm glad those sermons weren't taped. I was 18 and 19 years old. I'm so glad that they weren't taped. You know what the Lord says to me when I think that? He says, well, what makes you think you're so great now? You know. You really think you can preach? The first Sunday I was in Coburn, and Coburn was back in the coal fields. I met Maud and Jim. There were probably, it's a small church in Coburn, probably 40 adults there that morning. But the church was full of children and youth. And when I returned to preach again, Maud asked me if I would stay on Sunday evening and speak to the youth. I consented. But when I went to the place where they met, I was shocked. There were 60, 60 junior and senior high students at that youth meeting. I worked as an intern at Coburn Presbyterian Church because of the influence of Maud and Jim Hawkins for the next two summers. I discovered how all those youth got there. Coburn was a small town. Like all small towns, everyone knew each other. When a new baby was born, if the parents did not attend church, Maud would ask, go to those parents and ask if she could take the baby to church. Maud would come by in her Buick station wagon and pick up the newborn and take her to the church nursery, just that simple. She ran that route every Sunday morning for 40 years. 
picking up babies, picking up children after those babies became children. You see, those children just kept coming to Sunday school. They just kept coming to Bible school. They just kept coming to youth activities. I could stand here this afternoon, right now, and for the next 10 hours without stopping tell you Maud Hawkins' stories. I'll only tell you this one. By the way, she only had a high school education. You would have never known that. When I was in Memphis at Independent, I flew home to the mountains from Memphis to speak at her funeral at that small church. Church was full. She had lived a long life. She had been away from Coburn for 10 or 12 years. But everyone came. Elders, deacons, ministers, women who were now leaders in the county, leaders in the church. All of them were the babies and the children that she had picked up in her station wagon. One, one elder stood up. His name's Ron Jenkins. Ron said, I live next door to Maud Hawkins. I didn't stand a chance. person after person spoke of the impact that she had on their lives. I thought about that this week. Just relived that whole memorial service. You know, if Maud had been there, you know what she would have said? I tell you, I knew her so well. She would have said, John, I didn't do anything. The thing was, she would have been genuine when she said that. She was just totally unaware. And now you know how that came to be. Maud Hawkins simply drank from Jesus' water. And the rivers of living water flowed from her life.